Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the pod <clears throat> cast. We, what did we do? We finished chapter seven, we're up to chapter eight. Um, was there any discussion? Nope. Nada. Nah. Nah, mate. Um, actually, there was a comment from Swim, says the mum fishy. Hello, all. Hello, Swim. What, with all the gallivanting about we've been doing, I'm hopelessly behind in the reading. Well, that is quite hopeless because the reading that you have ahead of you to catch up, I'm not sure how many days behind you are, but I think you might be like maybe six days or so, is very dreary reading. So to try to catch up those six chapters um, is a good, you know, six hours of very tedious reading. So I do not envy that. Um, we had a day at a campsite where I started reading to catch up, but George kept putting me to sleep. Well, uh, we have a couple of days at a campsite on Oroville WA where I will have cell service. Nice. After that, we cross into Canada where cell coverage will be more difficult. Um, I want to be there for the end. We are having a blast and a half. Well... Um, you know, I mean, enjoy your holiday more than anything. I'm Googling Oroville, Washington State. Looks absolutely beautiful. Uh, let me click on images and see a few more images. Oh, what was the weather like? Here we go. 24 degrees Celsius. I'm assuming that's in Celsius, which is nice. Not not bad weather. Um, <clears throat> little township. Beautiful mountains those pine trees uh yeah beautiful it looks like the kind of place that you would see in an american film when um uh, you know when the kid goes off to like summer camp or something or they go off to their you know their lake house kind of deal um for sure um beautiful well enjoy it you know and don't worry about too much about the podcast. You're here in spirit. You've been here all the way along. And um, we'll see you at the finish line anyway. Um, one thing you could do to catch up swim is just listen to the podcast instead of reading the book. My readings are bad. I'll give you that. Um especially with this book. Um, you know, my readings are okay if I'm enjoying the book, but when I'm not enjoying it, I tend to rush through, skim through. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah, so look, that's an option though. And I think with most podcast apps, you can listen to it on like 1.5 speed, so it'll be even quicker which is good. Um, but yeah, up to you. You're cool. Or you can skim read the book. Uh, I guess it's time to keep reading, though, at the moment. Just need to find my spot in the book. All right, chapter eight. This chapter eight's really short. It fits in one page at the moment, which is beautiful. At least one page on my screen, I should say, not one page in an actual book. So, um, this shouldn't take long. That's a good thing. Chapter 8. 
Singer's death seems to have done him a great deal of good. He was not cold in his grave when his plays began to sell like hot cakes and a complete edition of his writings was contemplated, comprising the plays in his Wicklow sketches and the Blasket Islands, the newspaper articles that he had written upon the French poets were sought for and discovered and what was still more important, Yeats decreed a revival of the Playboy at the Abbey. We were all agog and prayed that the play would be allowed to pass without protest. It seemed very likely that it, this would be permitted, for Singer's success had sobered Dublin, especially its journalists. A sad thing it is for a journalist to find that the play that he has described as contemptible, as an insult to Ireland, accepted by all the world as a masterpiece, and the newspaper that smells like a musty sacristy held its peace or only sent one poor little voice to utter a faint squeak in the gallery from time to time. The play was the same, the text was the same, the cast was the same with one exception. The part of the playboy was entrusted to Fred O'Donovan, and thereby hangs a tale that I should like to tell. Singe had written the play knowing that the part of Christy Mahon was going to be played by Willie Fay, a little man five feet three or four. Allusions to his size had crept into the text, and Willie Fay, who is a true artist, had exhibited Christy Mahon in the conditions of a wayfarer who had been wandering for at least a fortnight, sleeping in a barn when he could find an open door and a dry ditch when he could not find a barn. And if Willie Fay had been a broad-shouldered, stalwart, fine young fellow, he might have carried the illusion so far as to send some whiffs of Christie across the footlights, but his diminutive appearance and the very qualities which made him so admirable and exponent of the part of Michael O'Dowd in The Well of the Saints were against him in The Playboy. An actor's stock in trade is his personality, and Faye's personality is of the crab-apple kind, and it was necessary that the story that Christie had to tell should be told with an engaging simplicity. The audience must sympathise with the son who... Whom the four, who the father persecuted because he would not marry an old woman, the audience must see the father raise the scythe, and poor Christie the loy to defend himself. The father is cloven by the loy, but that is an accident. I did not see Willie Fay in the part, but it is easy to imagine how his reading would alienate the sympathy of the audience. He might point to certain passages which would support his reading, no doubt he could, but these are not the passages that should be brought into light. It just comes to this, that no man living can play the two parts, the playboy and the blind man in the wall of the saints, any more than any man can play Hamlet and Othello satisfactorily. A different personality is required, and Fred O'Donovan is a well-favoured young man whom any girl would like for his appearance, and he told the story of how he had killed his father simply, almost innocently, as an unfortunate accident that had happened to him, and Pegan Mike pitied him. He was no doubt occasionally against the words, but that was unavoidable. The part cannot be played any other way. A few phrases were dropped out here and there in the second act, the bandage was no longer blood-stained. In the third, when Christie went out to kill his father for the second time, his father came in all, on all fours. This kept the comedy note, but which was in danger of being lost, for Pegan Mike is very angry with Christie in the third act, believing him to be a mere braggart. The weak spot in the play, but it passes rapidly, and it was interesting to speak about it 
to Miss Mare O'Neill, who played Pagan Mike, out of a very clear vision of the character and with all the finish of a true artist. However we look at it, I said, it is difficult to see how Pagan Mike could have brought the peat from the fire to burn her lover's feet and three minutes after rush to the door to watch him leaving her forever, going away with his father back to their own countryside. Miss O'Neill said she didn't think she could speak the words so that the audience would understand that her anger against Christie was simulated. Well, imperfection is often a zest, I answered, and last le- and left the theatre thinking that fate had allowed Singe to accomplish very little. Two one-act plays, purely tentative, a three-act play upon an old theme, The Tinker's Wedding, and a dramatic version of The Legend of Deidre, which it would have been well for me to have read before writing this page, for the printed page alone is voracious. Our ears, however quick, cannot take in the whole of a play. Book, the... But the book is not on the table, nor in the house, nor at the booksellers around the corner, and it is well that it isn't, for it is pleasant sometimes to believe that one's ears are trustworthy, and amid my oral experiences I have none more agreeable than the music of the dialogue about Nice's grave, though memory recalls but one tiny phrase, death is a poor untidy thing. The writing of Deidre's peasant speech was Yeats's idea, and the text bears witness that when Singe had written an act, he began to feel that peasant speech is unsuited to tragedy. Only the second and third acts are of much account. Only these are finished, and to finish the first act, Singe would have had to redeem it from peasant speech. Ridiculous and out of place at the court of kings, though the kings be but shepherd kings. There is less idiom in the second act than in the first, and none at all in the third. And when I mentioned these things to Yeats, he told me that Singe had begun to weary of the limitations of peasant speech. It is difficult to imagine Singe writing about the middle classes and their tea parties for the upper classes and their motor cars, and we may exercise our wits trying to discover the turn his talent would have taken. But it is more practical to tell how Lady Gregory came to the rescue of the Abbey Theatre and saved it after the succession of the phase. She could write easily and well, and had shown aptitude for writing rural anecdotes in dialogue, and it is an open secret that she and Yeats, she was Yeats's collaborator in The Pot of Broth and in Kathleen Nihulan. And feeling that the fate of the movement depended upon her, she undertook the great responsibility of keeping the theatre open with her pen, writing play after play, three or four a year, writing in the space of ten years something like thirty plays, and as there one among us who would undertake such a job of work and accomplish it as well as Lady Gregory, the plays that flowed from her pen so rapidly are not of equal merit, nor is there any one that compares with the playboy, but all are meritorious. Merit- Victorious. All are conceived and written in the same style. She is herself, is her little plays, a gallery woman telling rural anecdotes that amuse her woman's mind, and telling them gracefully, never trying to philosophise to explain, but just content to pick her little flower to place it in a vase for our amusement and go on to another flower. The rising of the moon is very pretty, but it bit of artless dramatic writing with a fine folk flavour, hardly written told, as the people would tell it by their firesides. Hyacinth Halvey has been played all over the world with success, and one must not look too scornfully at success. A certain measure is necessary in a theatre. Spreading the news is even more natural than the rising of the moon. 
It is just the gossip of a village thrown easily into dramatic form. Nobody could have done Lady Gregory's plays as well as she did them herself, and the workhouse ward must not be forgotten, a trifle somewhat sentimental, but just what was wanted to carry on the Abbey Theatre, which for a moment could do very well without the grim humours of Singe. We must get it into our heads that the Abbey Theatre would have come to naught but for Lady Gregory's talent for rolling up little anecdotes into one-act plays. She has written three-act plays, but her art and her humour and her strength rarely carry her beyond one act. The best of her three-act plays is probably the image in which she sets the whole village prattling. The characters go on talking about very little, yet always talking pleasantly, and we go away pleasantly amused and pleasantly weary. The telling of the jackdaw is a little confused, but whosoever writes thirty plays in ten years will sometimes be sprightly, sometimes confused, sometimes languid, and will sometimes choose subjects that cannot very well be written. She has told that she wrote plays in the first instance because she believed it to be her duty to write for the Abbey Theatre, and afterwards, no doubt, took an interest in the writing for its own sake, and in this her story no wise differs from many others, chance playing in our lives a greater part than we could care to admit. She never would have written a play if she had not met Yeats, nor would Singe, who is now looked upon as an artist as great as Donatello or Benvenuto Cellini, Perhaps I should not have gone to Ireland if I had not met Yeats, and if I had not gone to Ireland I should not have written The Lake or The Untitled Untilled Field or the book I am now writing. Damn you, Yeats. So all this Irish movement rose out of Yeats and returned to Yeats. He wrote beautiful lyrics and narrative poems for 20 till 5 and 30, and then he began to feel that his mission was to give a literature to Ireland that should be neither Hebrew nor Greek nor French nor German nor English, a literature that should be like herself, that should wear her own face and speak with her own voice, and this he could do only in a theatre. We have all wanted repertory theatres and art theatres and literary theatres, but these words are vain words and mean nothing. Yeats knew exactly what he wanted. He wanted a folk theatre. For if Ireland were ever to produce an, any literature, he knew that it would have to begin in folk. And he has his reward. Ireland speaks for the first time in literature in the Abbey Theatre. And that's the end of the chapter. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.